Chapter 60. It's still raining now as I drive out of Manhattan and emerge on the 495, impatient to get to Montauk. It's as if it never stopped raining for the last 10 years. A thick fog from the Atlantic is rolling in. Inside me, it's been 10 years of rain and fog as well. I want to end this trip one way or another, get some emotional clarity. I'm tired of throwing my life into the air like a juggler, not knowing if I can catch all the spinning plates before they come crashing down, unable to make a choice between my past and my present. The last three days and nights behind the wheel seem like a lifetime to me. The long-awaited reunion with my dream lady is only a few hours away. I almost want to postpone my arrival to savor the delicious moment of finally arriving. The horrible weather is not letting up, so whether I like it or not, I've got to slow down. The daunting rhythm of raindrops on my windshield makes it difficult to see the lanes on the Long Island Expressway, much less drive within them. Combined with the ghastly bolts of lightning shooting across the sky and the thunder splitting the black clouds above me, the storm distorts my focus. My eyes are glued to the road, but I need time to collect my crazy, disparate thoughts. So I get off at the next exit, Van Dam, and realize that I'm not far from the Greenpoint section of Brooklyn in the hole, the decadent lounge bar where Louisa and I first met a decade ago. I decide to revisit the hole's decrepit neighborhood. The infamous watering hole was built inside an abandoned warehouse a couple of blocks from the riverfront the parking lot in the back next to a dump strewn with rusty carcasses of broken-down cars. Once on Greenpoint, I take a right on McGinnis and drive along until I spot Freeman Street. What a perfect address for the hole. I make a left and cruise down my memory lane toward the East River. The hole and all the vacant lots have disappeared. Maybe the place only existed in my imagination anyway. The entire neighborhood has been transformed into something clean and modern, no longer funky and chaotic, gentrified into neat apartment buildings and spiffy commercial spaces with newly planted trees along symmetrical sidewalks. It's pretty, passionless. Exactly where the hole used to stand is a magnus opus of slick, tasteless architecture showmanship, sporting aluminum panels, big glass windows, and video cameras pointed at every imaginable angle. It's a bank, I think, as it says credit union in big letters above the entrance. I pull over and let the car idle, listening to the rain, remembering fondly the dive where lots of tormented souls were searching for a little peace of mind, one night of horny pleasure, or an opportunity to simply forget everything, including themselves. It was placed to give yourself a break from yourself, and now, the lost souls have gone elsewhere, and the neighborhood has become a shrine to greed. I wish I hadn't stopped and seen this travesty of modernization. I pull out and head back to the LIE. It's time to move on in more ways than one. The rain and the fog make me steer cautiously along the highway. I'm driving eastward through a contemporary landscape of shopping malls and car dealers, but I'm thinking about what this land must have looked like hundreds of years ago and it was nothing but magnificent forests, pristine rivers, and untouched valleys. This land was the land of the Iroquois before the French and English fur traders showed up and decimated the native tribes with European diseases. It took me until the ripe old age of 40 to find out that my maternal great-grandfather was an Iroquois Indian, a member of the Mohawk tribe. The Iroquois was called Haudenosaunee, or the people of the Longhouse. 
because that was how they lived, in long, narrow shelters with several families together. I was never curious about my own heritage, but the Iroquois connection tickled my fancy. The Mohawks were warriors, developing arrows with flint heads to overpower their enemies. They were also known as the Keepers of the Eastern Door, because for hundreds of years, Mohawks guarded the other Iroquois tribes against invasion from New England and lower New York areas. So it is perfectly possible that my ancestors hunted, fished, fought out here on Long Island in a past century. I turn south at the Satitos Parkway and then catch Route 111 until I make a left on Route 27 near East Islip. The rain hasn't let up, nor has the fog lifted. There are fewer and fewer cars on the road. I'm driving almost like I'm an automatic pilot, a pigeon flying home by some navigational magic. The solitude makes me think of my Mohawk great-grandfather. How would he have managed out here all alone in the darkness with rain coming down ceaselessly, fog clouding his view of the trail? The old Mohawk must have been thinking this was the end of the world. He must have thought the Iroquois spirits were all going mad, that they had abandoned him, that the earth was condemned to hellish darkness, and that the sun would be eradicated by the storm. The old Mohawk wouldn't have been scared for his own life. He would have been worried about his loved ones back in the village, his wife and son who he left behind to go on this hunt. Just like me, the old Mohawk must have been talking to himself a lot, asking for help and guidance. I drive past Patchog, Mariches, then Eastport. There's not another soul out here now. At Shinnecock Bay, the fog is so thick I have to slow the car down to a crawl. A tremendous sense of guilt envelops me like the fog. The same guilt must have crushed the old Mohawk's heart too. Why didn't he show more love to his wife and his child? Why did he have to leave them alone to strike out on his own in uncharted lands? The old Mohawk thought he might die on this trail, battered and drowned by God's fury, abandoning his family for good. Separated by a few centuries, I'm on a lonely road having exactly the same thoughts as the old Mohawk must have had. Past Watermill, Ridgehampton, and then Armagansett. I push forward relentlessly. I wish the old Mohawk were riding shotgun in my car right now, dressed in one of those beautiful Iroquois outfits. We wouldn't have to talk. We would look at one another and smile, knowing how much we share. We would understand each other without exchanging any sounds. It would be a peaceful man-to-man -man thing. We'd be fighting together from here on out. The rain and fog couldn't affect us. Heaven and hell couldn't scare us. All the gods couldn't choke our manhood to death with guilt. The old Mohawk isn't here. No one is out here but me. Where are all the cars on Route 27? Is everyone hunkering down at home just to escape the rapacious rain and fog? They don't want to challenge the elements and risk triggering God's fury. They don't want to push their luck. Listen, you gods. I've always pushed my damn luck, and I know you like playing mind games with me. I don't care if you are laughing at me. One day I'll have the last laugh. I'll earn my own happiness without you. Napog disappears in the rearview mirror and lost in my thoughts at the end of my tether and at the end of Long Island. That last stretch of road seems to take an eternity to cover. Then suddenly, without knowing how I found my way through the rain, I spot the fluorescent sign out front of Martha's Inn and pull up in front. 
turn off the car engine, grateful for the silence interrupted only by the sound of the wave breaking on a nearby beach. My journey has come to an end. Chapter 61 I closed my eyes to savor the moment and leaned back against the headrest. I had driven up the entire east coast of the United States to see her again. We were going to be together after ten long years without any word of each other. Oh, Louisa. Louisa, the love of my life, now is our time. I must have fallen asleep for a while because when I next opened my eyes, an ocean breeze had blown away the storm clouds, and the first light of dawn was shimmering over the ocean. Unlike New York City, nothing out here in Montauk has changed much. Martha's Inn is exactly as I remember it, a two-story New England-style brick structure with white shutters and a front porch stretching across the entire facade, trimmed with a white picket fence. The other buildings around here look about the same as well, no worse for the wear despite constant pummeling by salty sea air. That welcoming smell of the nearby Atlantic permeates everything, just like before. The rising sun now sends streaks of orange and gold across the azure sky, highlighting the long, narrow clouds high above the coast. It's all as I remember it. I let out a muffled sigh, a melange of awe with the beauty of it and relief that it still exists. I get out of my car and walk slowly up the stairs to the front porch, look around gratefully and listen to the silence. Not another soul is stirring yet. I push open the big wooden front door and walk inside, relishing the parquet floors, the rugs, the framed pictures, the hominess of the place. Ten years have passed in the blink of an eye. Martha herself appears, coming out of the breakfast room holding a tray. Her makeup and hair are arranged impeccably. She's dressed like the 50s film star Connie Francis in Jamboree, only with an apron. Welcome to Martha's Inn, she says. Do you have a reservation? Martha speaks with that same charming, slightly Polish accent. I look straight into her eyes. She blinks thoughtfully as she studies my face, trying to dredge up some vague memory that fails to come up. But she doesn't remember me. Why would she? Is the Jasmine Room available, I say with a tired voice. Well, yes, the Jasmine Room is... Martha stops dead in her tracks, locking her eyes on mine in sudden understanding. She is momentarily speechless. Oh my God, she blurts out, then gasps for a deep breath of air. Her face changes from that of a professional hostess to one of genuine sorrow tinged with unexpected joy. She puts her arms around me and gives me a warm hug. Luke, Luke, she says, backing away and taking hold of my hand, suddenly finding her voice. How are you? After all these years, my God, you're back. I'm so glad. Especially after what happened, I really wanted to see you again. I'm good, Martha. How are you, I say. But all I'm thinking about is her turn of phrase, especially after what happened. Obviously, my appearance has flustered the good woman. Martha collects herself skillfully, yet her words, especially after what happened, continue to echo in my mind. Not bad, not bad at all, Martha is saying to me, though I'm not really listening. Her voice is trying to break through the fog in my mind. My God, Luke, it's so good to see you again. I've thought of you many, many, many times over the years, and here you are. I don't know how to respond, so I smile and say nothing, blinking my eyes at Martha with acknowledgement. 
Silly me, Martha continues. I'm just chattering on like a parakeet. Let's sit down and talk later. You look tired. Go on up to the jasmine room and I'll bring you a cup of hot tea, all right? Two teas, please, Martha. Two teas? Yes, I'm expecting someone. Expecting someone, repeats Martha, looking a little lost. You know who. Oh, I see, she says warily, forcing herself to smile. Well then, go on up. I'll see you in a bit. Without any further delay, I climb the wooden staircase, walk down the hallway, and resolutely open the unlocked door to the jasmine room. The key is in the lock, and I leave it there for Louisa whenever she arrives. The room is exactly as I remember it. I close the door and breathe a sigh of relief, kick off my shoes, walk over to the window, and open it. A sudden breeze of salty wind blows into the jasmine room, bringing the music of the ocean with it. It's a violent melody underscored by the backbeat of thunderous waves crashing against some rocky cliff not far away. It is exactly the way I remember it. Without taking off my clothes, I lay down on the king-size bed and pull the quilt over me because the breeze is invading the room with its early morning chill. My heart is pounding away, exploding in my ears. She will show up any time now. What am I going to say to her? Nothing. I'm not going to say anything. Explanations will be useless. I'll just take off her clothes, go down on my knees and start kissing her toes, then work my way up from there, not skipping a square inch of her lovely body. Maybe I can tell her later how much I missed her. Maybe I can explain how I was half alive for all these years. Maybe I'm going to crack some jokes and make her laugh that laugh again. I've missed the sound of her laughter more than anything else in the world. Then we'll kiss and make love slowly. So slowly that it will last almost forever. It will be one continuous lovemaking seance, locked in each other's arms with me inside of her and her inside of me, our mouths glued together, our tongues dancing voluptuously. There will be no more separation. Never again. Not until we die together. I close my eyes and wait for her arrival. Then I fall asleep, blissfully, 